Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, on our very last episode of season four, we have explored the land of Israel. We've explored the whole entire earth. We have explored the outer reaches of the cosmos. What is left? Well, I'll tell you what is left heaven, hell, and the life to come. So in this episode, we will be talking about what happens after death, where we go, or where God goes, perhaps. And um, to guide us through this discussion, we will be dealing mostly with a book by the famed New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Incidentally, the N.T. does not stand for New Testament, though that would be a perfectly logical inference to draw. Um, I actually don't know about the N, but the T stands for Thomas. Apparently, he goes by Tom. You've met him, Dad, haven't you? Yeah, he came to Roanoke College and gave a lecture. It was a, quite an event. Um, um, a, thousand, a thousand or more people crammed into the uh, auditorium <laughs> at Roanoke College for his lecture. And uh, then uh, I think the, subsequently the next day, uh, he and his wife and uh, a faculty colleague who was his host came out to our St. Gall farm and spent a delightful afternoon uh, conversing with him. it was He's a very jovial and interesting uh, personality uh, and very impressive scholar, of course. Yeah, well, so I guess he's kind of like a beetle of, of New Testament scholarship because there aren't that many people who can pack out an auditorium like that. So anyway, uh, well, well known for many reasons. So the book we're going to be talking about of his is called Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. And this was um, recommended to us by a friend of the podcast. You know who you are. Thank you very much for this. So, um, yeah, there we found lots good stuff to engage with here, as well as some critiques to offer. But I think the place we're going to start is with a critique that we share with rights of popular perceptions of Christianity. And... Um, Dad, I think anyone who has spent any time as a pastor realizes that even though Greco-Roman religion has for all intents and purposes been dead for, you know, going on 2,000 years, basically people still are Platonists at heart. They still think that the real thing is the soul. The body is a cage. And when we die, our immortal soul floats up to the heavenly realm of perfection and static non-change forever and ever. And the body stays where it belongs in the earth to rot. <laughs> yeah, I think that's basically what most people think, even people who are self-consciously Christian. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things Wright is going after is basically this extremely persistent perception. And let's admit, um, there have been plenty of reasons why uh, Christians through the, through the ages have um, endorsed this vision or a given reason for people to go on believing in it. So so uh, that's one thing he's against in the fundamental Gnosticism and hatred of the created material universe that goes with it. But he also has in his sights both premillennialism and postmillennialism, which we've mentioned on and off this season. Again, as a quick recap, premillennialism is the belief that um, connected to the rapture and the tribulation, um, that um, there will be all this um, 
terrible stuff on earth and then Jesus will come and there'll be the thousand year reign, but then everyone will be rocketed away forever and ever and kind of kick the earth off like a, a ladder, you know, and um, be taken up into a heavenly realm. And um, the very worst versions of this are actively like destroy the earth. Who cares? It's a piece of junk that we're going to get out of. And then the flip side is post-millennialism, which is that we are going to bring the kingdom on earth, which generally also justifies um, any behavior or social or economic or political reprogramming whatsoever to make this earth a fit place for the Lord to come. I would say there's probably more secular post-millennialists now than there are religious ones, but the the sort of the... Um, the undercurrents of it still course through a lot of liberal Protestantism and Catholicism. History, uh, the arc of history bends towards justice, and therefore, don't you want to be found on the right side of history? That's the uh, the post-millennialist liberal theology that has now become a secular credo. Well, it's not just that it bends towards history, but let's reach up, grab the ark, and drag it down closer to us so we get justice faster. Yeah. I'm going to bring in the kingdom by force, yes, as Jesus said, yes. Okay, so those that's kind of the, the landscape of misperceptions of Christian belief that N.T. Wright is attacking. And one of the main reasons he says he's doing this is because he finds that people have a total disconnect between their earthly lives and what they expect after death, such that there seems to be no real motivating factor for the mission of the church um, and for the consequences of, of bodily and social action right now. And so what he's basically trying to do is stitch back together um, Christian vocation practice evangelism on this earth and exactly what is promised and hoped for in the life to come. Yeah, that, that, that's the, the book has a sustained polemic against these kinds of beliefs and it's trying to correct them with on the basis of his extensive and, uh, you know, uh, in my mind, basically very uh, plausible historical reconstructions of Second Temple Judaism as the as the worldview context in which early Christian faith arose, uh, and uh, its belief in the resurrection of Jesus, and what that would mean for the fate uh, not only of the human individual but indeed for the fate of the whole cosmos. Uh, that's a, he's trying to, uh, as it were, resurrect the early Christian resurrection faith which he thinks has been crucified <laughs> yeah. by a long history of Platonism in the church. Yes. Terrible Platonism. Well, we'll come back to that in a bit. So, um, so yeah, so that's where Wright is coming from. So let's go now through his counter argument uh, from the biblical sources, especially. Yeah. I think we can begin with, you know, a, really a very basic point uh, that when we look at the, especially at the synoptic gospels, and the primitive Christian traditions which they um, record, the ministry of the earthly Jesus um, is a proclamation and inaugurating enactment of the kingdom of the God of Israel, uh, which is on the march, which is moving in uh, to Galilee, uh, part for the whole, uh, to the to the earth, is moving in to liberate and redeem uh, bound and captive creatures from the uh, contra-divine kingdom of the devil. Uh, so God's reign is 
targeting planet Earth, specifically the land of Israel. Uh, and in the case of Jesus, of course, that initiates in the region of the mixed region of Galilee. So the first and fundamental idea is we do not go to heaven. Rather, in the Bible, centrally in the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God comes to earth. Yeah. Or even the kingdom of heaven. He, he makes a point that that's a polite circumlocution um, of Matthew's, which people often misunderstand to mean that it's kingdom of heaven is away from earth. But actually, it's Matthew's polite way of saying the kingdom of God is what's coming to earth. Right. And I think it's also notable, again, against both the pre- and post-millennialist tendencies, is that it is actually healing people and rescuing, delivering people on this earth, and it puts them back into their ordinary life. Like, the whole point is to restore them to the created goods of family and sociality and, you know, feeling well in the body, but also that it is right. a miraculous intervention. It, you know... Um, Three cheers for all the things that uh, modern medicine has given us. But um, Jesus' healing ministry is not like a forecasting, like someday we'll have anesthetic and surgery, but it's a miraculous <laughs> intervention of God to save his people, not something that people themselves bring about by, you know, more determined effort. Right. We'll have to come back to this theme of the miraculous, or as I've come uh, to prefer to say, the fabulous uh, in in the in the whole uh, apocaly uh, uh, apocalyptic eschatology that N.T. Wright is trying to uh, resuscitate for us today. But let's go on. So speaking of the fabulous, um, resurrection kind of, for N.T. Wright, sums up all of the uh, 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 elements of, of God's coming to earth. Uh, resurrection is the true triumph of life over death, which means that death is an enemy of life, and life is in mortal combat with death. And so there's a, 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 a dramatic duel that takes place uh, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in which resurrection is God's word uh, to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Uh, so, um, the synoptic gospel accounts of the resurrected Jesus are really quite uh, materialistic, aren't they? I mean, you've got uh, somehow you've got Jesus appearing in a recognizable form. Uh, he can show uh, his wounds uh, from his crucifixion to establish his identity with the Jesus whom they knew and said uh, known to be crucified. Uh, and uh, uh, as we were saying in the last episode in the Gospel of Luke, you've even got uh, Jesus uh, munching on some fish with the disciples. Uh, so resurrection is not only the moral vindication of the crucified Jesus, it is the affirmation of the, of the materiality of the incarnation of the eternal Son. It is the... Uh, redemption of matter.
Absolutely. And this is uh, one of Wright's really big points, which is that a ghostly afterlife is the victory of death, not the victory of life. Life is the, the you know, like we say the word animal uh, from anima, a soul. So, But we refer to it as these material things that move through the world around us and include us, of course. So resurrection is... Um, is resurrection of a body is the specific victory over death. The escape of the soul is, is death somehow winning and um, right. Won't have that. Yeah. He, he simply rejects it as, and of course there is an issue here, but we'll get to that when we talk about criticisms later on. Uh, and he, then in addition to resurrection, Sarah, he also lays a great deal of uh, accent on the Ascension story which he thinks has often been neglected or overlooked. Oh, I agree. Actually, this is this was one of my favorite parts of the book is um, because I, I uh, we don't really do those in between weekday holidays much at my church and um, and uh, Ascension Day. I have to say I was always fond of Ascension Day because of a couple times when I was a kid, my birthday fell on Ascension Day. So that felt like, you know, for a pastor's kid, that's like super liturgical bonus to have your birthday on a, a minor church holiday <laughs> um, and not a competitive one. Like I, I, I have a friend whose birthday is on Christmas and I always thought that would be a real bummer. But, uh, you know, Ascension, you know, no nobody's as uh, possessive of Ascension. Um, well, I guess I am. But anyway, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to preach on, especially... Um, in an era of astronomy, like, and telescopes and outer space, like we talked about. And uh, it's very hard for people to get at beyond a literalistic reading of, of Jesus, you know, rocketing off the earth. And where is he? Like, does he live on Mars now? Or, you know, or pe- <laughs> right. people back then just didn't know better. They didn't know heaven was up there. And, um, you know, and but I, 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 what I like about the Ascension story and I, what uh, some of the things that Right brings to it is that first of all, it actually accounts for what happened to Jesus' body. Like if the story is just kind of tapered off after the resurrection, it would be considerably less plausible because you say if there's such a big deal about Jesus coming to life again in his own material body, then where did it go? Where is he? Like, you know, is he hiding out somewhere even now. So the Ascension actually accounts for Jesus' physical body's um, removal from the earth. And, um, you know, the the stories actually say he is um, enveloped in clouds. It's not like you see him, like, break through the stratosphere, you know, and enter into (laughs) orbit or anything like that. It's much more like when Elijah is taken up into heaven, that that's clearly the, the imagery that it's drawing on. So the ascension is like the necessary like punct to the resurrection story. Uh, but um, Wright brings a couple more theological points that I thought were quite important, and I think you did too. So why don't you start with the first one? Well, first of all, he interprets the ascension according to the scriptural uh, uh, paraphrase of it, uh, that he is seated at the right hand of God, which is, of course, a, a, a scriptural uh Old Testament way of speaking about uh, being invested uh, with divine authority, uh, being inaugurated into messianic office uh, as Lord uh, of uh, Lord of the earth. So, uh, and of course, in Luther's conflict with Zwingli about these things, uh, where Zwingli was saying, "Look at." Jesus can't be present in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper because his body is in heaven. 
and uh, to which Luther re replied to that kind of literalism, look, um, the, uh, heaven is the right hand of God's power, and God's power can be anywhere and is indeed everywhere. What's important is that this exaltation to lordship means that Christ, according to his exaltation, is available to his people in this time remaining between his uh, first coming and his second coming. So the lordship of Christ is exaltation, vindication, exaltation to power and authority, which gives uh, makes Christ uh, uh, bodily available to his people. And that bodily availability then is specified, especially for Luther, in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, maybe maybe someday we could do an episode on confession concerning Christ's Supper, because I, I find Luther's arguments about presence quite powerful and fascinating there. But I, I just want to say to this also, Dad, one thing actually I like about your work is that you make such a point of distinguishing the kind of language theological language is. And I think that's particularly helpful here in the Ascension story, because the point is, it is neither a literalistic, like mechanistic rocket ship out of earth story, but nor is it a purely like symbolic, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's about some principle, but it's not really about, you know, any, any body of Jesus, because, you know, that's beneath us, we think symbolically, because we're above all that, you know, and the right hand of God is, is not, uh, is neither symbolic nor literalistic. It is a theological assertion about Christ, his lordship, his availability, including the availability of his body. And I think that's, that's very hard for our minds today to wrap themselves around because we are either literal or symbolic thinkers, but we have a hard time charting out this theological space. And I, I like how much you have spent your theological career trying to articulate the varieties of theological speech. Right. The new language of the spirit is what Luther calls it, right? Yeah. And I think that this kind of indicates a, a concern. Uh, this book by N.T. Wright uh, on uh, hope, Christian hope, is really on the side of the angels. It's a very good book and a very helpful book, I think, for a lot of people. But where he gets fuzzy is on the question of literalism and the precise nature of theological language. And uh, I, we're going to get to that because that's my major concern with the book at the end. But again, it's just being signaled here already. He knows that you can't take the Ascension story literally as Jesus skyrocketing up through the clouds into some local heaven up there somewhere. He knows you can't do that. He knows that the meaning of the story is the exalt vindication and exaltation to lordship, right? Uh, and he also has an interesting implication of this about the relationship between Christ and the church. Why don't you comment on that? Oh, right. So th this is very much connected to the availability of Christ, which I also want to say connects back to what we were talking a few episodes ago about how um, you don't you don't have to go to the, the land where Jesus walked because Jesus is with me every day. And in the Johannine Christology, Christ is a, the traveling tabernacle that is made available in every Lord's Supper everywhere on earth. And so that actually gets a sort of a, 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 sec a second vote of approval from the essential 
redemption story about the availability of Christ. But for Wright in particular, the huge importance of this, and this is more against the post-millennialist liberal Protestant, liberal Catholic reading, is that because Christ is available in his lordship, the church is not the Lord, and the church is not the be-all and end-all presence of God on earth, and therefore the church should not try to be that to people. And in fact, the church goes terribly awry when it is in fact the... um, the stand-in for an absent Christ rather than the servant of a present Christ. Very good, yeah. And that's the kind of notion of the church as Christus prolongatus, uh, Christ, as it were, extended into history or something like that. And um, I think N.T. Wright, without acknowledgement in this book at least, learned this distinction from Ernst Kaseman, who always made an important distinction and always warned against Christology being swallowed up by ecclesiology. I think that's how the Kaseman put it. Um, um, and so the the lordship of Christ, um, hidden in a hidden way over the entire cosmos, but in a manifest way in the life of his people, the body, his earthly body, the church, um, uh, means that uh, he is the head and we are the body, <laughs> and, and the relationship is irreversible. Okay, well, let's go on to the next point. So this is, I would say, the the thing that I learned from this book that I had absolutely no inkling of before. So I'm very curious to hear your take on it, Dad, which is that uh, he charts out that the New Testament's speech about what happens after death clearly posits two different like stages or phases, though they're not going to be temporal in the sense of earthly time. And the first is that the dead who are in Christ um, or who are uh, probably to some extent in Israel um, are of the covenant are um, go, go to rest in a place that may variously be called paradise, heaven, or Abraham's bosom. And that is where they wait. It is um, like when Jesus says to the the uh, thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What he's specifically talking about is this resting place for the faithful. But then at the end, the very, 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 very end of all things, um, that is when the final resurrection takes place. And then what is heaven or paradise um, uh, gives way or disgorges. <laughs> it's it's the faithful to be raised up in their bodies. And that is when the new Jerusalem descends to the earth in a somehow transformed cosmos and that the full materiality of life and resurrection comes to be. And Wright uh, just makes a point of saying this is nothing like the medieval doctrine of purgatory, which of course is a place of intense suffering to pay off debts. And he says that uh, contemporary Catholic theologians like Rahner and Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict, have done enormous work to um, rescue the doctrine of purgatory, but what they have come up with looks nothing like its medieval iteration. So uh, not to confuse the two. In fact, it looks a lot like Luther's 95 Theses. Purgatory now. Purgatory here and now. Purgatory without delay. The entire life of the believers is one of repentance and so forth. You know, yes, I think that's right. Um, Look at, you know, I wish he had also discussed Sheol, the Hebrew idea of Sheol, which is often kind of associated with the... um, 
um, New Testament Greek word Hades, the realm of the dead, and so forth, uh, and made a, some clearer differentiations here because clearly for Paul the Apostle, when he writes, for example, that it would be better for me to depart and be with Christ, but for your sakes, God keeps me alive, right? Uh, Paul, When Paul refers to life after, life after death this way, he's certainly thinking of a conscious state. He, he's certainly thinking that he will be with Christ in fellowship with Christ in a direct way, right? So I, I think there's an element of consciousness here, and how that can be conceived apart from the resurrection of the body is something he kind of fudges, I think, uh, to an extent. But clearly he's right. There is this idea, our lives are hidden with God in Christ, both now and forever. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. These are ideas uh, that indicate that upon death, uh, the faithful are somehow consciously in a in a good place, a place of peace and happiness, present to Christ before the final resurrection and restoration. I think that that is a very interesting uh, development that he reconstructs for us. Yeah, I, what I found helpful about it is that the only way I've known how to cope with both our belief that the dead are with God in God's care now, and that evidently the final resurrection has not taken place, is to just kind of pull a, you know, God's time is not our time kind of trick. So, you know, like, you know, Augustinian Lee, God sees all things. So in his eyes, the resurrection has already happened, even though it hasn't happened for us, you know, and, you know, you can, you can kind of do those time and eternity things. Um, I find this more helpful in that respect of the, you know, because it takes into account the language of, of paradise and rest, Abraham's bosom, and still... St- emphasizes that there is something really final about final judgment or last about the last day. I guess the problem is, like you say, how is that then not the immortal soul hanging out with God until it gets reinvested in a body? And um, of course, the New Testament just doesn't give us anywhere here enough data to build on. But uh, that's probably one of the reasons why the immortal soul idea has been so persistent in Christianity, because it's drawing on this this kind of two-tiered perception of what happens after death. And you might even say that the, the the idea of the soul that is borrowed but from Platonism, this is a pretty complex topic in and of itself. We could do a whole podcast on Platonic eschatology, uh, and it's not as simple as these um, uh, um, summary statements we make about body-soul dualism and so forth. Uh, in any case, I think that the, the, the important point— uh, for to take away from right is that um, in some sense the faithful will be conscious uh, of their fellowship with Christ and that can only be understood as a good thing um, uh, in in expectation of the grand finale yet to come right and that makes it very different from Sheol which from which there is no, as far as I can tell, in the Old Testament, there's no real hope of of escape, and not much in the way of consciousness. It's not it's not a hopeful or pleasant place to be. Yeah, he doesn't really comment on the verse which made it into the Apostles' Creed about the descent oh, yeah. into uh, it can be either to to the descent into hell or to 
the descent to the realm of the dead. Uh, there's a, just a, a single uh, consonant separating two Latin words that can mean hell or the realm of the dead. Right, right. Okay. And we're not sure text, textually what's original, but he doesn't discuss any of that. Okay. Well, speaking of which, let's move on to hell. So um, Wright definitely would agree with your your constant drumbeat, Dad, that judgment is a desirable good because love names that which is against love and evil deserves its condemnation. So I don't think we have much to argue with there. Uh, but then he talks about, you know, the, the big question of, you know, are there those who will not be saved, uh, enter into rest, be raised up to everlasting uh, life and glory? and joy with the Lord and his people. And so he says very clearly, this is a speculation on my part. We again have very little to go on from the New Testament, but he says that uh, it seems to him those who hand themselves fully over to their sins, not those who wrestle with them or desire deliverance, but actually collude fully consciously and desiringly with their sins. So example, those who lust for power and therefore only know power relationships, or those who live for sensuality and therefore see all people and and, uh, things as purely objects for their lust, that they will eventually become what they have worshipped. And so they will lose the capacity for imaging God God, which will put them beyond hope, but he adds also beyond pity. Um, and I think when a lot of people wrestle with the idea of hell, it's the idea of, you know, like a mother eternally weeping in heaven over her son who got shut out because God slammed the doors shut on him. And um, so his rights argument would be um, people who have placed themselves so fully in the power of, of evil, sin, the devil, um, are they are beyond hope. They reject what God has to offer, but eventually it will also be to the point where there will be no grief over them either, um, I suppose, because they will have so fully alienated those who might have loved them at one time. So what do you think of that speculation? Uh, like all speculations, I, it's hard to even for me to even have an opinion on it. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I Seriously, I mean, uh, it, 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 to me, this tends towards the doctrine of annihilation, that uh, those who uh, consciously, deliberately, and perpetually refuse the God of grace uh, have turned towards nothingness and in time become nothing. Uh, and, you know, as far as speculations go, it's coherent, makes sense, you know, and so forth and so on. I don't know that it does justice to the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Who wants to do justice to that? <laughs> well, I, you know, the book of Revelation does. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and Jesus's metaphor of Gehenna, which we believe was the word for the smoldering dump heap in ancient uh, Jerusalem, that's an image of uh, a gnashing, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Um uh, so I, you know, it doesn't do justice to such uh, biblical imagery, and let's leave it at that because I don't want to get involved in speculation. Okay, um, I, I don't know if we would ever, you know, talk further about the idea of universal salvation. It, it came up recently in a class I was teaching, and I, I guess all I can really say about that is. Um, Universal salvation is basically the flip side of double predestination, which is a speculation that wants to solve the problem outside of actual 
lived human reality with God by just by fiat declaring that all are saved, just like double predestination says some are and some aren't, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so I think uh, if you reject double predestination, you also reject universal salvation as a done deal, like as an accomplished absolute fact. I think you can certainly hope for it and pray for it. But um, I think the temptation or the anxiety over the horrors of Gehenna and the Lake of Fire make people just want to solve the problem by declaring universal salvation to be a thing. Right. But it, it actually right. is no more um, grounded in the life, death, resurrection of Christ than I think double predestination is. So that's all I have right. to say. Yeah. Yeah, we're always on the horns of a dilemma when it comes to the idea of hell, because on the one hand, um, we have to affirm the universality of Christ's saving intention and mission. Uh, This was the Lutheran point Christologically against the limited atonement of the Reformed in the 16th, 17th century, that uh, Christ, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Uh, so the you have to affirm that God seriously intends and wills the salvation of all creatures. On the other hand, you cannot draw the conclusion that therefore God will simply wear down the opposition and finally force everyone into his uh, loving arms, you know. There's a, a, a just a, 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 a there's a tension there that cannot be resolved by us. I think actually, um, this is one of the reasons why box music is so powerful because it actually, uh, for its very strong Lutheran doctrine of atonement and mercy and grace, it also actually takes the human condition very seriously and both freedom boundness and uh, sorry both human boundness and human freedom at the same time which opens up the possibility of tragic personal estrangement while calling you constantly away from that tragic estrangement towards reconciliation with God and i think that dramatic and you know even musical depiction is more accurate than a you know a, a finished propositional doctrine either of double predestination or universal salvation right Theology always gets in trouble. Uh, Peter Mollish and I were just talking about this recently because we both want to follow Luther with a certain reserve. The technical word is apophatism um, when it comes to the mysteries of God, that uh, whenever by reason we try to uh, cut the Gordian knot and get it all figured out, we go beyond our capacity, and then we fall into these pits. Uh, And that doesn't mean that the mystery of God is unintelligible. We can't believe in the mysteries of God without some understanding of what they are, what, what exactly is mysterious. And what is exactly is mysterious is that God seriously intends the salvation of all of God's creatures, uh, including those creatures who reject his grace and purpose. And yet God will not and cannot be conceived finally to coerce creatures into his love. And there we have to leave it. It's how this will be resolved is a problem that only God can fix. 
Yeah, I, I endorse that. I, I, but I like uh, acknowledging the mystery to be at the far end of the struggle. I've known a few who have invoked it at the near end of the struggle, and that doesn't earn my respect. But I know that you and, and Peter are not are not invoking it soon or cheaply. All right, well, so then all of this stuff we've talked over is is basically the, the reason why Wright makes the strong argument that what we do now as believers, as the church, in our bodies, in our, our lives, communities— matters tremendously because the kingdom of heaven is eventually destined to come and fully reclaim this earth. We have an inaugurated, but not a finished eschatology. And so therefore, you know, uh, take up, take up your work with good, good cheer and good hope in the Lord and move forward. So, um, yeah, what's wrong with that, dad? (laughs) Well, it's really very, I mean, uh, like I said, this book is on the side of the angels. I, affirm so much about this book um, and uh, uh, right hit, hits upon the Pauline verse uh, about pers- being persistent in, in doing good because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that's kind of his key text about how Christian hope makes significant what we do here and now with our bodies. And I think that's exactly right. Um so let's understand any criticisms we're about to make as a, well, what shall we say, a, a friendly criticisms. To strengthen the argument, not to demolish it, yeah. Right. And I think, you know, part of the argument is that Wright describes himself as a biblical theologian. Of course, he's far more than that. He's also a churchman who's been a bishop of the Church of England, uh, so he has a strong commitment uh, to the to the um, suffering, struggling, divided uh, body of Christ on the earth, uh, and that's a kind of a pretty rare combination nowadays to have a serious biblical scholar who wants to do theology, which is knowledge of God, right. Uh, and he wants to do it in connection with the renewal of the church and its mission. Uh, and I think those are all uh, immensely to be affirmed uh, and, and, and welcomed. And I think pastors and uh, folks out there listening to this podcast, this would be a great book to read for yourselves, for your own edification, but also if you're interested in uh, working on a beefing up the congregation's theology and revitalizing its mission, this would be a great book to work through with the leadership of your congregations. So all that by way of affirmation, right? Now, so what's the, what are some of the difficulties? Well, first of all, biblical theology itself. Um, to call your work biblical theology is to make a very modern distinction, indeed separation, if not divorce, between reading the Bible theologically and doing dun dum systematic theology, <laughs> which for most people can be just off in another world of metaphysical uh, uh, speculation or political uh, 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 reductionisms of one sort or another, and so forth. Um, what I find lacking in the book are the kinds of hermeneutical questions 
deliberate attention that we raised in connection with the ascension of Christ. Uh, how, how do you take this seriously but not literally? And I wish uh, in this book Wright had spent more attention uh, to the problem of biblical literalism, because so much of his argument um, finally turns on a kind of a pick-and-choose literalism. No, the ascension wasn't literally skyrocketing to heaven, but literally Jesus will return to earth and, 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 and resurrect bodies right here on planet earth, you know? So, I mean, how do you, how do you pick and choose your literalisms? That, that's fu fundamentally a question uh, that I, uh, that perplexed me as I read this book. Uh, and I think also for me, you know, I think it's not systematic theology. I've tried to invent a different model called critical dogmatics, which acknowledges that there are certain uh, uh, implications of the gospel that must be articulated uh, as doctrines in order for the proclamation of the gospel to continue. And that's a, a topic going back to our first episode, What is Theology?, four years ago. And I, I, I think what Wright is actually doing is not biblical theology. I think he's doing dogmatics. I think he's saying this is what we should believe, teach, and confess uh, about God, Christ, and humanity on the basis of scriptural gospel and its uh, historical uh, interpretation. Um, so I, I, there's a, that's kind of just registering a methodological kind of an issue with him. But now let's move on to more important things, substantive things. Um, uh, he talks about the relationship of Romans 6 to Romans 8, Sarah. Why don't you tell us what he actually says about that relationship between um, being baptized into Christ to be led by the Spirit and the consummation uh, of the creation in Romans 8. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just read this quote here, though you've summarized it pretty well. Genuine biblical theology would press for some form of inaugurated eschatology. That means the end times already breaking in, in some sense. Uh, right, continues. You would insist that the new life of the Spirit, in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, should produce radical transformation of behavior in the present life, anticipating the life to come, even though we know we shall never be complete and whole until then. That is actually the lesson of Romans 6. Well, apply the same to Romans 8. Um, and then when you, you wrote this in the notes to me, you said, um, what about Romans 7? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Romans 6, of course, is, is the baptismal language of dying and rising with Christ. And Romans 8 is the, the spirit groaning and the whole creation groaning and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Those are all super inspiring, hopeful, radical change kind of things. And then there's Romans 7. And I am sorry, New Testament scholars, I know you want to insist that Romans 7 is not about Paul himself or Christians now, but I'm sorry, that is bad Christian spirituality and bad theology. Of course it is about us right now. And I just like, I can't fundamentally trust or believe anyone who doesn't think Romans 7 is totally about people who are already in Christ. And yes, I'm a hardcore Lutheran and unforgiving on the points. So there. <laughs> yes. And for that, you'll spend your own uh, time in purgatory someday, my dear Yeah. Daughter. If there was one, uh, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the... Um, 
inaugurated eschatology actually means the inauguration of the Spirit's battle against the flesh, in Pauline language, in the concrete life of the believer. And that's exactly why Romans 7 is sandwiched in between the inauguration in baptism, dying in principle to sin, that it no more may reign in our mortal bodies to live by the Spirit. Uh, yet that crucified power of the flesh keeps reasserting itself. And as long as we live in the unredeemed world, uh, short of the consummation in Romans 8, it will perpetually insinuate itself into us. It will penetrate us. It will get inside of us, and it will cause us to fall back into bondage. And therefore, the life, the entire life of the believer is one of repentance, because it's the ongoing spirit-inaugurated battle uh, against uh, the desires of the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for desires of the flesh, Paul says in Romans 13. It's a text I'm preaching on tomorrow uh, Sunday, th this coming Sunday. Uh, so I think that this raises the question um, of the kind of a, a little bit for my, like you, Lutheran taste, a little bit too optimistic a view of radically transformed Christians. It raises the problem that Simeon Zoll speaks about so interestingly and compassionately, what he calls mediocre Christians. Uh, what to do about our mediocre Christianity? Well, I think for one thing, resituate it into Romans 7, between the inauguration of the new life in baptism and its yet outstanding consummation in Romans 8. Yeah, and I think it makes a huge difference if the mediocrity is due to you're not trying hard enough or not having a good enough biblical theology that gets you off your duff and moving, or if your mediocre Christianity is that you are a fragile, vulnerable, sinful human who regularly colludes with the forces that are constantly trying to tear you out of God's grip. And so, you know, between your, your ignorance, your weakness, and your collusion, you are constantly prone to um, bad decisions, which means repentance and crying out to God. God to help are really your best bets, not um, diligent uh, self-improvement courses. Right. Okay. So let's move on. That's uh, that's kind of a, a Lutheran descent from uh, uh, N.T. Wright's uh, rather vigorous Calvinism at, at showing up in times, right? <laughs> yeah. Shall we just say that in an ecumenically kind way? Uh, it's uh, All right. We've made the point. And look, we're, we're all in favor of people who have their stuff together and can function well. And like the bourgeois are unfairly attacked all the time. Like the world functions because of nice, good, kind, respectable middle class people. It, it's not the source of your salvation, but it sure prevents things from getting a whole lot worse on the earth. So, you know, nothing against that. That's not where the critique is. Right. I think a, a, another criticism, and this again comes to the selective literalism uh, of N.T. Wright, and it's a problem we talked about previously in, with regard to um, Mark Kinzer uh, uh, and his interpretation of Luke and Acts. And that is, you know, the historical point that uh, N.T. Wright has made, especially in his scholarly works, is that the exile never ended. Uh, six centuries before the time of Christ, and that uh, 
uh, as far as especially Pharisees and Zealots were concerned um, by the in the time of Jesus, uh, Israel was still uh, in exile, unredeemed, dispersed, scattered, and it, the land of Israel was still uh, occupied by foreigners and run uh, the sovereignty had been lost. And so kind of from this historical point, which is certainly true and well-founded, Wright kind of makes a leap into uh, imperialism in general, as if the enemy of God were imperialism as such. Now, what's the problem with that? Historically, the alternative to imperialism is nationalism. Or tribal anarchy. Yeah, absolutely right. Barbarism, right? So, uh, uh, but in the time of Jesus, that was a kind of Jewish nationalism that today we call Zionism. And so is that the, if you're going to attack imperialism as the political enemy of God, right? Are you not therefore forced to say that some version of nationalism or Zionism is the friend of God? That was exactly the devil's choice at the time of Jesus and why Jesus has uh, um, uh, said, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. You know, that's a way of... of, of uh, accepting the literal reality of the Roman Empire without sacralizing it. Right. Or in John's gospel, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pontius Pilate goes, ah, so you are a king. <laughs> like, nope, missing the point there. Yeah, right. And of course, John would help a lot here. But uh, unfortunately, on this issue, N.T. Wright does not make use of John. Uh, and so, you know, this is... Uh, a problem with his work in general, uh, which John, this uh, New Testament scholar John Barclay, has made quite a point of criticizing. And I, I can give the readers a reference to an essay I wrote on the powers and principalities in which I refer to John Barclay's criticism of uh, N.T. Wright's uh, uh, in literalism with respect to empire. Uh, and the the kind of questions that it fudges for the interpretation of early Christianity and Paul. I think you also wanted to talk about Gnosticism, right? Yeah. Uh, again, I think it's a terrible mistake historically to assimilate Gnosticism and Platonism as if Gnosticism were simply an extreme version of Platonism. It's true that they, they share a certain kind of dualism, but they're rather different, actually, when on, on close examination. And the simple way of explaining this is that Platonic uh, body-soul dualism is actually a very optimistic, uh, in context, a very optimistic anthropology. Because everyone, whether they know it or not, is a little... Um, has a little piece of eternity or deity inside of themselves called their uh, immortal soul, uh, which can be separated from the prison house of the body finally and return uh, to the divine realm. Uh, and uh, actually, our ideas of heaven and hell uh, come as much from uh, 
Plato's dialogue about the death of, of Socrates, uh, the Phaedrus or Phaedo, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But in, in any case, um, the, uh, Platonism assumes that because we are in our intellectual souls, uh, genuine reflection of uh, genuine participants in the divine, our life in the world is creative uh, and, and, and can construct and impose form on chaotic matter, that we can be little architects of, uh, of the world just like the demiurge, the great architect, form the cosmos and so forth. And so it's a very optimistic and uh, one might even say progressive anthropology, maybe one of the reasons why people still like platonic dualism. Um, Gnosticism is a very different spirit. The divine sparks of life lost their themselves. They don't even know who they are at all. They are so thickly imprisoned in social life and material life uh, that they need a revealer to come and waken them up and realize their true identity. And with that knowledge of their true identity as alienated sparks of divine light, they can then even already now begin to leave this bodily, social, psychosomatic world behind and in their interiority ascend to divinity. A very pessimistic uh, anthropology. So that you shouldn't associate the two historically the way that, that Wright does. And that goes along with another problem, uh, that in Second Temple Judaism, Sadducees and Gnosticism appear as phenomena within Judaism, within Second Temple Judaism. So in a way, a way what, what Wright does is, like Kinzer, is he privileges the Pharisees as the genuine heirs of the Bible and simply dismisses the, uh, the arguments of Samaritans, Sadducees, Gnostics, and Zealots uh, all of these are phenomena within Judaism at the time of the Second Temple. So I think the, those are important reservations about his historical argument. All right, well, I, I don't know enough to contribute to that, but that sounds like a good reservation to register. So how about entropy? Yeah, entropy. Um, well, this this is where the, the problem of... Uh, his selective literalism really uh, becomes acute in contemporary thought. Um, according to the best thinking of contemporary scientists, the world having had a beginning with the Big Bang 13 billion some years ago uh, is eventually going to uh, decompose. It's eventually going to run out of energy and fall apart and go dark into an eternally dark, cold uh, future. So how does that work with this selective literalism uh, that asks us to believe that this planet Earth is going to be uh, uh, redeemed and fulfilled, right? Uh, uh, when if even more immediately than the heat death of the universe is the fact that our sun 
will turn into a red giant and incinerate us and so forth. Well, and, I, I think uh, life is going to vanish off the earth even long before that happens, and including us. So, yeah, there there are many, many kinds of huge, huge deaths on the horizon if the world takes its natural course as we perceive it. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, N.T. Wright's answer is just like God did the Big Bang in the beginning, God will do a new Big Bang upon the heat death of the universe or the incineration of planet Earth or something like that. But then you have to raise the question, what is the principle of identity between literally this Earth and the future that God promises us? And here again, I think the biblical theologian lacks the, uh, he, he refers to John approvingly to John Polkinghorne's uh, interpretation of the resurrection hope. Uh, uh, but I don't think he understands it very well. What Polkinghorne has argued is that a carbon atom is a carbon atom is a carbon atom here or in, in, in the Andromedia galaxy. Uh, they're interchangeable. And you do not consist of your of, of the various atoms that make up your physical body. In fact, your physical body uh, switches out the atoms in it every seven years or something like that. What you are, what you really are, according to contemporary science, is uh, uh, information that uh, that has uh, been uh, gathered both from your biological inheritance and its unique history interacting with your environment uh, throughout your life history. And this uh, whole uh, uh, assemblage of information uh, from your birthday to your death day is your personal identity or your objective bodily identity. Maybe bodily identity would be better here when we understand body to be psychosomatic. And Polkinghorne's argument is that God, the creator, can know, remember, and uh, hold uh, in safety your biography, your so understood, uh, despite the material destruction of your organism that occurs in death. Uh, what we are is this information that God remembers, purifies, heals, and then somehow re-embodies uh, in a new heaven and a new earth. So th that's Polkinghorne's argument, which I find very attractive. Uh, but I don't think it, it, it fully concurs with, with, with uh, Wright's selective literalism in this regard. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know how to interface this problem specifically, but just the way it's described sounds um, alarmingly to me like... Um, uh, AI or cyber understandings of humans as as data or information that can be uploaded and transferred. And I'm sure that is not what Polkinghorne is going for. But it seems to me if you're going to talk about pattern or knowledge or information that can be abstracted from the organism, then you run into to that, that possible um, reconstruction in the cyber sense. So I don't know. We're not going to solve that here, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I'm just, again, my point is simply that the uh, there's no principle of selection for the literalism in Wright's account of Christian hope, and that he appeals to Polkinghorne. He actually does. Uh, 
but I don't think he understands Polkinghorn very well. Uh, okay, I think that what it, what it was it really comes down comes down to is uh, I, in that that I think he, this New Testament eschatology indeed does work to say what we do here and now in our bodily lives has eternal meaning. I think that's exactly right. But I think, Sarah, you realize, too, that there's problems even with this, aren't there? Yeah, well, so, I mean, Wright is someone who has clearly led a very fulfilling life in, in the best sense, like, uh, of the most humans can hope for out of life. And I think if you if you live that kind of life, then, of course, you want to argue that what you do now is of everlasting consequence and will be vindicated, rewarded, honored in the life to come. Of course, sins forgiven and, and griefs. Uh, you know, consoled and all that kind of thing. But by the time I was at the end of the book, I was like, you know, I think one of the reasons why the immortal soul or Gnostic escape or dualistic views are still so powerful is, first of all, because so many people's experience of bodily life is just terrible. Like whether they have illness, they have been enslaved, they have been raped or beaten consistently, if they suffer a horrible disability, if they've been disfigured, if they've even just been, you know, relatively unattractive on the spectrum spectrum of human attractiveness and have never gotten the kind of, you know, um, interest, validation, love that they might have wanted, um, that people naturally want, um, I can see that you would not want to know that you are saddled with this body or even a recreated, improved version of it forever and ever. Because if there is any principle of continuity, does that mean I take my, you know, the the scars of my enslaved or disfigured body into into eternity with me? Is that somehow a permanent part of my identity? If we're saying that your historical lived reality on earth matters, I mean, Jesus still has his scars when he's risen from the dead. Or um, if it's not even a, a bodily thing, but um, just kind of looking at the intense malaise that we see in the world today, if people's experience of life is that they they're that it's empty, it's inconsequential, they have nothing to offer, they have spent their entire lives in meaningless jobs doing soul-wrecking work, or they have always wanted to do creative work and have never been able to get up over their, get over their hang-ups or fears or inability to focus or concentrate, if they have frittered away their talents, you know, if they just made a wreck of things, you know, and of course, emotionally, psychologically, lots of people make wrecks of their lives and suffer the misery forever after, why would you want that to continue? Why would you want any recognizable continuity between this life and the next? So, you know, on, on the one hand, I appreciate Wright's call to people. I, I think he's trying to call people out of the malaise and out of the self-hatred into engaged, passionate, created, devoted work. But kind of like in our mentioning of Romans 7, that it is a deep mystery of the complexity of the human soul, how many people can hear that call and even desire it and remain unable to answer it, whether because they are prevented by huge forces outside of them, like enslavement, or because of just an internal flaw that means they can just never get it together. Um, how then do you make the case that... Um, bodily and personality continuity between this time, this life and the next is desirable. I don't think it's the slam dunk that Wright thinks it is. 
Yeah, I think you're right. In fact, I have a pastoral experience. I was um, some years ago um, teaching an adult class at a congregation, and I was, you know, waxing eloquent on this resurrection of the body theology along the lines of N.T. Wright um, and so forth. And one um, at the end during the Q&A, one woman said, I don't like that at all. My former husband was a jerk, and I don't ever want to see him again, not in this life or in the life to come. <laughs> and that too. So she was just, yeah, right. And, and, and so I think, I think, you know, you're, this is an important objection because it can't simply be the, the continuation of earthly life as we have known it. Uh, there's, uh, you know, one of the ways Luther thought about this was that the reason why we are still, uh, even though we are in principle and in power, liberated in baptism to live by the Spirit, one of the reasons why the flesh keeps reasserting itself, seducing us, entangling us, or even defeating us, is because our physical organic bodies connect us to the whole system of the world. And uh, as I often said to students, you think you're on the side of clean energy, but every time you turn on the light switch, you're burning coal, right? And I would go and make just say, you think you're saving frugally for your retirement, but your investments are in, uh, in, in corporations. You have no idea how they make their profits, et cetera, et cetera. You cannot get out of the world, and the world is systemically, systematically sinful. And so even though you as an individual in the world have a new citizenship, you're no longer in allegiance to that old system of things. You're in allegiance to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, because of your bodily engagement uh, in the needs of bodily life, you cannot escape the world which penetrates you in these ways. And so for Luther, you know, you have to live in this conflict and tension until that great fabulous transformation, which is the general resurrection of the dead and the new spiritual bodies that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, as does N.T. Wright. Yeah. And I think the flip side of that is that... Um part of the spiritual discipline of good work, good vocation, creative work is also to let go of it and to recognize that if you are so lucky as to be one of the people on planet Earth who got to do anything freely and joyfully and creatively in your work, it is a gift. You don't deserve it. And therefore, you also don't get to pass judgment on those who don't. Um, one of my my little parables in my book, Pearly Gates, is about a woman who comes to the, the pearly gates weeping because all she holds in her arms is just this um, amorphous gray mass, the just wreck she's made of her life. And, um, you know, is told that she, you know, 
cannot take it in with her and she doesn't mind, but she's, you know, saddened that that's what her life became. And then someone else comes with this big, lush, buoyant green plant and she, the first woman looks on enviously. But then that woman is also told, you have to put down your plant. You can't take it in with you. And and the woman who has the beautiful plant is very reluctant to let it go. And she actually needs the woman who had the gray mask to walk her in and let go of her plants. And that's, I guess, what I was trying to get at is it's a gift and a privilege in this life to be able to do good things, but uh, good works do not save, but also creative vocation doesn't save. Showing up for the world, being a dedicated citizen and neighbor doesn't save. All of these things are gifts given to us now, but they all have to be set down. And in some very true sense, we all enter the kingdom on a level playing field of, like you said, ha- having to die to everything, uh, even even the the privileges or the gifts that we've been given in this life. Yeah, that's very good, Sarah. And, uh, you know, in the book at one point, in the early in the book, uh, Wright criticizes uh, the hymn of the Wesley hymn, Love Divines, All Love Excelling, particularly the final verse that concludes that we will be lost in wonder, prayer, and praise. And he criticizes this as being, you know, something akin to playing Uh, harps on sitting on clouds or something like that. Uh, To me, that really misses the point. And it's it's something that I'm not happy about in the book. For me, the idea of the eternal life promised to us is entirely theocentric. It's all about beholding uh, the God of grace and glory, the Lamb and he who sits upon the throne. Uh, Because the healing uh, of our historical biographies, our bodily lives in the world, the final healing and reconciliation of them consists in this uh, uh, rapture, this praise of God. The praise of God is the medicine of the soul and body uh, unities that we are. And I wish uh, he had thought more about this rather than going off in these fantasies about having cosmic projects, you know, that uh, we have work, we'll have work to do in the new world that God is creating, as though this were the literal extension of time on into infinity. Hmm. Okay, uh, the objection is well registered, but tell our listeners, Dad, what you've always said should go on your tombstone someday. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there's a story behind this. I've always joked with with my wife that I want on my tombstone to be written, this is a mistake. I have work to do. (laughs) And anyone who knows you will say, yep, that sounds like Paul Hinlicky's epitaph. Well, since we're wrapping up this episode and this season on heaven, hell, and the life to come, um, I I already vetted this with Dad ahead of time, listeners, but um, Dad, you turned 70 this year. Um, You have had some health challenges in recent years. You're facing some now. And um, I am completely unreconciled to the fact of your mortality. Um, And uh, (laughs) But but perhaps you are a little bit more. And I was just wondering if you had any uh, any final thoughts on this relationship related to being at this stage in life where um, death is nearer than birth. And um, if you have any, you know, yeah, words of hope or confession for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, well, I think for me, the what has kept me going uh, all through the years um, um, 
uh, in the struggle of the spirit against the flesh that uh, has transpired in my concrete existence is um, the um, is doxology is the praise of God uh, that I was just talking about a minute ago. Uh, to be reconciled to God for me means uh, to be lost in wonder, prayer, and praise. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is all that the promise of eternal life means. Uh, and I've lived my life that way uh, uh, with an accent on uh, doxology. Uh, when I was young, I read a really powerful book, which I would recommend to everyone, Ernst Becker, Denial of Death, um, in which he showed how the sovereignty projects, the immortality projects of death deniers has wreaked so much havoc uh, on the human race and planet Earth. And he begs for a rebirth of human existence in which we face up to the reality of our death uh, and embrace that reality in hope uh, of eternal life. Uh, and again, I don't have any uh, idea of what eternal life is or could be like. Um, I don't have any pictures, but I have a lot of confidence, just like Paul, that it is better to be with Christ. And that, that's enough for me. Well, you were well named then, weren't you? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well. So concludes our fourth season. Yes. Okay. Yes. And thank you listeners for sticking with us for all these years. We have a number of bonus episodes coming up through the end of the old year and into the beginning of the new. We'll be back sometime in January with season five. Please tell a friend. Please support us on Patreon. Please uh, read your Bibles, be lost in wonder, prayer and praise and have a marvelous Christmas. for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.